the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today, I am sitting down with Chris Anderson. He is the head of TED. If you've ever watched a TED Talk, probably the reason is Chris Anderson. He acquired the company over 20 years ago. We talk about that, turned it into what we all know as TED today, and we are going to cover a lot of things like why and how ideas spread behind the scenes on their massive growth, how Ted got rejected by network television. And also for those of you who are communicators, I asked Chris for his advice for preachers and communicators. So today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy's Pastoral Succession Toolkit. You can get my brand new value-packed training, which includes super practical salary negotiation tips for free. If you're thinking about a transition in ministry or have just gone through one in the last few years, go to successiontoolkit.com. And it's brought to you by He Gets Us. You can go to hegetsuspartners.com slash fans today to get your free resources and join the over 15,000 churches who are also a part of this movement. Well, uh, I was thrilled to get Chris Anderson on the podcast. He is the curator of TED, which is a nonprofit media organization that leverages the power of ideas to make a better future. He was born in 1957. He spent most of his early life in Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan in 1985. He launched Future Publishing, which ultimately expanded to more than 130 magazines and 1,500 employees. We touch on that briefly. In 2001, he took over leadership of the TED Conference, and I highly recommend, we'll link to it in the show notes, a talk that he gave to the people who were invested in TED back in 2001, 2002. It is a brilliant vision casting talk. Under his stewardship though, it became what it is today. Over 3,600 talks and animated lessons have been released for free on the TED website, more than 100,000 on YouTube. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, TED Talks, and has overseen the introduction of TEDx, TED Ed, TED Fellows, and the Audacious Project a new form of collaborative philanthropy. He's a founding partner at Countdown, a global initiative to champion and accelerate solutions to the climate crisis, turning ideas into action. So, man, this is a uh, really, really cool conversation. We also get into his background as a missionary kid growing up and Christianity and his faith and what he misses about that, if anything. So, Thanks so much for tuning in. Hey, some of you are brand new. Welcome. For those of you who are listening regularly, thank you so much for subscribing, for leaving ratings and reviews. It means a lot to us. And whether you like to hear it or not, the truth is that every pastor is an interim pastor. And sooner or later, there's going to be a leadership handoff for a church to remain healthy and growing. I've been through it. You will be through it too. Or maybe you're in it right now or have gone through it. So if you're preparing for an upcoming transition, you're in the process or have gone through one in the last five years, I recently teamed up with Sean Morgan to create the Pastoral Succession Toolkit. The toolkit is a perfect fit for incoming pastors, board members, and guys like me, outgoing pastors who are two years pre-transition to five years post-transition. When you sign up, you're going to get two live workshops with me, Sean, and other transitioning pastors to work through some of your toughest 
transition questions together. You'll get a comprehensive checklist that outlines key milestones, decisions, and goals, both pre and post handoff. And as a bonus, a super practical salary negotiation tip for everybody who is looking to negotiate their salary. If this sounds helpful, it's free. Go to SuccessionToolkit.com to get everything I just mentioned. It's free. That's SuccessionToolkit.com. So Super Bowl Sunday is coming up and we all know people that will be watching not just for the game, but also, you know, for the ads. Well, did you know that He Gets Us, which has been now a partner for almost a year of this podcast, will be running ads during this year's big game? The ads will reach thousands of new people across the country with a message of Jesus relevance to our daily lives. It's an opportunity for you to listen and respond well. The question is, are you ready? So head on over to hegetsuspartners.com slash fans and you'll be able to download resources like a party pamphlet and a discussion guide so you'll be ready. That's hegetsuspartners.com slash fans. Make sure you check it out before the Super Bowl. Well, now my conversation with Chris Anderson. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have been anticipating this conversation for a long time and I'd love to start a little bit close to the beginning, and this is almost, uh, I was watching a number of interviews getting prepared, and I think your your wife, Jacqueline Novogratz, who's been on this podcast before, asked you a question at a summit once, and she, you know, you were born in Pakistan to missionary parents and educated there, uh, and I guess in England as well. In what ways did your childhood and your upbringing shape you into the person you became? I mean, they all do, but I'm just curious how that particular... Uh, In a way, none of us can really know the answer to that question because there's only one journey and I don't know what it would have looked like to have grown up any any other way. But um, I mean, first of all, you know, my parents, as you say, were were missionaries. They were were, um, working for something bigger than they were. And that was was part of our life the whole time. It was always... it was always very, very clear that, um, you know, that God's will came first and um, everything else second. That Now, that didn't preclude an extremely loving family environment, sometimes almost too much loving, it felt like, maybe. But um, um, but I, I don't know. I, I, felt, I feel very lucky the way I grew up because I think growing up in, a, in another country, I mean, I was born in Pakistan. I actually went to school in India in an in international... India school that was up in the Himalayas, a spectacular nature. There's a lot of time playing outside on the mountains, you know, collecting beetles and just, and and going to school with people from 30 different countries. And that, I mean, I actually, you know, I went back to the school um, a few years ago and said to the school then that you shaped my identity as a global soul, like by, by, as a kid, when you grow up that way, you know, the sort of, uh, the, the, the things that have become so important in our world of, you know, the, where is someone from? Are they with us or are they other? You know, those things kind of naturally go away because you, and what matters is not what country is someone from or what color they are. What matters is, are they chasing your girlfriend or are they, <laughs> um, can you beat them at, at some sport or whatever, or do you, do you all like the same music? You know, that, that, that's, that's what matters. And, and I, I, I just like if one wish, if, if I could have it, is like, I wish every kid could grow up that way with, with other kids from around the world, because it's, it really does change 
a lot, I think. So those, those two things, probably the, the, the sort of naturally glowing, growing up, kind of feeling like a global soul. Um, and um, like more, I feel more a global soul than I feel British, although I am British. I'm proud of it. Um, but I, I num- you know, my number one identity there is probably as a global soul. Um, and then two, just you can't really get out of your head this notion that life is about living for something bigger than you are. Um, and, uh, I, I, I think that's an important idea. Yeah. You, you said something that kind of caught, caught my attention, almost too loving. And, you know, it's not always that when you grow up with Christian missionary parents or in a Christian home, the description is loving. Sometimes it can be harsh. Sometimes it can be difficult. What do you mean by too loving? That's interesting. Well, <laughs> um, you know, we, we were sent to boarding school, so we were actually away from, um, our parents for uh, nine months of the year. Um, and, and this was pretty much from age five, six. Um, wow. and, and so some people go to that and think, oh my God, that's awful. You know, how could you possibly do that? The, so it's possible that, I mean, my, my parents were serving the Lord, you know, and, um, uh, and it's possible that they, you know, that's hard for them as well. So when we were with them, we were, we were possibly held too closely. Or I, mean, I, I sometimes felt that. It was like, you know, like, how, like the, the intensity of their love for us was, was clear. But because it was crammed into a short part of the year, occasionally that felt, that sometimes felt suffocating. I just, I just wanted distance. But I mean, it was, it's not a big deal. It's like, you know, we were a loving family and I, I loved them. And we, you know, I always felt like I, I, never felt they were making a bad choice by, you know, abandoning us for such long periods. I thought, this is who they are. This is what they want to do. This is great. And, uh, and we were given a great life. We were, you know, the school was, was amazing. So it's always interesting to figure out what you want to do with your life. Your life kind of has a hinge point maybe 20 years ago that we'll talk about when you acquired Ted. And, but, you know, the part of, of, of your story that I didn't know until I started diving deep for this interview is you had a very successful career in business. I'd love to go back to what drew you there. Like it was a computer magazine in 1984 or something that you decided to launch, which became a bit of an empire. Like how do you go from missionary kid, global education, something bigger than yourself to becoming an entrepreneur? Right. Um, well, I was, I was really lucky, you know, like I, I grew up, um, in, in, like when, when I was in Pakistan, I was there with kids playing with kids who had nothing. And we, none of us had really had anything at that time. Um, and here we are many years later, they're probably still stuck in a, in a, in a village somewhere, maybe farming or if they're even still alive. Um, I got an education and, um, um, and that changes everything. So I was sent to boarding school in England uh, from age uh, 14 and um, then went to Oxford, studied philosophy. Um, and, um, um, and then I became a journalist and, um, and uh, you know, spent a few years doing, doing a few bits and pieces. But um, I then just got completely captivated by the arrival of home computers. Like I've always been somewhere between, like I've loved language and communication, but there's a sort of science geek nerd somewhere in there as well. Computers, the fact that you could have a computer in your very home that you could actually program and get it to do things, 
that was amazing. And so I, I, I kind of was uh, addicted. And at, at one point, um, had a chance to become editor of one of the new, you know, computer games, magazines, and uh, kind of bluff my way into that job. Right. And, uh, and then a year after that, um, you know, the whole world of publishing was changing. The, the, the computers themselves changed the technology of how you could produce a, a, a publication so that instead of having to do it as a sort of big unionized operation uh, with, with lots of people and a huge investment, you know, three or four or five people working from home could basically produce a magazine. You'd pay a printer to print it. But you, could, you, could, you could do what was, you know, you could basically typeset from a computer and then paste up these pages and send them off to a, to a printer and print your magazine. And so th- this, this, you know, timing is everything and there's so much luck in that. But in, after a year of working on this magazine, it, it, um, in 1985, I decided to try and go it alone. And it was the perfect time to do it. And we, we started out with a single computer magazine, but then every year, you know, th- 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 there was so much happening in that space. There was so much opportunity to launch new magazines, that we just kept doubling in size every year for seven years and adding in um, these these other magazines into the mix, like any any kind of craft or hobbyist magazine. My my um, thought or the, the thing that drove us was that most media is quite broad, but that your best chance at connecting at a really deep level with uh, with an audience is to is to go narrow and to to try and tap into people's actual passions. So we produced magazines that were really boring for almost everyone, except the people they were targeted at who would run to the newsagent every month for the new issue. <laughs> You're talking like cross-stitching or whatever, whatever, like yeah, super Yeah, there was niche. cross-stitching, there was classical music, there was mountain biking, there was w- woodworking, um, all, you know, photography, all, all sorts of different pieces to it. But I, the majority of them were tech-related in some way. Huh. And so doubling every year, I mean, there has to be a skill set there. And, you know, this is something we've seen at TED too. TED was a pretty obscure conference when you acquired it in 2001, 2002. And the reason it became, it was known in its sphere, technology, education, and design, but it wasn't nearly a household name like it is today. What have been some of the keys, Chris, to... Uh, the virality, I guess you could say, of your career over the decades? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, certainly early on, um, there, was, there was a strong element of luck, I would say. That particular business at that particular time could grow from its own cash flow. So m- not many businesses can do this, but basically... If you launched a new magazine quickly enough, if you if you could if you could go from idea to printing of the first issue within three months, you would not you, you would actually get revenue from a distributor before you actually had to pay the printer, and so you could so you could you know you, you every launch kind of paid for itself, and uh, that 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 is. I've discovered since I didn't know this at the time, but that's that's a very very rare for a business. Um, wow. um, so we yeah we we grew ourselves from from our own cash flow, and so long as the ideas were good, um, then and you had a, basically a pretty good hit rate on what you launched. I mean, you could build a, a business very very quickly. To, to, in order for those ideas to be good, I mean, you just have to hire great people and. Um, we we found a way of um, sort of presenting the company as this kind of 
we were based in Bath. Most of the publishers are in London. Bath is 150 miles away. It's a beautiful place, but, you know, not London. But we, we, we presented, we were this kind of um, uh, rebel alliance out, out, in the, out in the sticks that was taking on the big publishers. And there were a few people for whom that was a hugely appealing sort of positioning. And so it was just, it was just great fun. Like we, we could take on the bigger publishers, move faster than they could and, uh, and, and pick up these, these sort of audience niches, many of which they didn't really care about anyway, because they were relatively small for them. Uh, but for us, they were, they were great. And, um, so, so there's, it's some, some mix in, in there. I, I would say more broadly, the single biggest thing that I've looked for my whole entrepreneurial life is, is passion. Um, not my own passion, other people's passion. Like if you can see that people are really excited about something, that is your clue that there is untapped growth there. Mm. Um, and, you know, the market doesn't often pick up passion very well. Like you can compare two TV shows with the same viewership or two um, magazines with the same circulation. That tells you something, but it doesn't tell you how intensely those audiences engage with that media item. And if you, if you have a sense that one, there's much deeper engagement than the other, that is your clue that this is the one where there's going to be word of mouth, that people who subscribe are going to renew and that you can, you can, you know, you can build a business from that. So when it came to Ted, um, when I first went to Ted, um, you know, in the late 90s. TED was an annual conference in, in California. Um, 500 people went. And um, it, was, it was tiny relative to the world of sort of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of magazines being sold. Um, but those 500 people, A, they were, they were remarkable people by and large. And B, their passion for this experience was astonishing. Um, I think my first TED, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, who was not really well known then, told me this is the most important week of my year. And uh, several people felt the same. Like this was, they, they, they started their year's calendar carving this out because it went so deeply inside them. And, um, and so that was the clue that um, there was really something special here that deserved to be more than just 500 people one, one, once a year. I'm trying to understand what that thing was, you know, took a while. And I, I mean, I think what that thing was, was that people, most conferences are about one thing and you go deep into that thing and it's your profession. And, you know, the notion of multidisciplinary knowledge and how to make that interesting is not often, or certainly back then wasn't often talked about or thought about. Um, in fact, multidisciplinary sounds boring. Your first exposure, when I first went to TED, I'd be hearing, I was interested in what technology and publishing. You'd hear from an architect or, or um, you know, some artist or whatever. And I think, why am I listening to these people? Um, but over the course of several days, you see that all of knowledge connects. Like literally all of, it, it does all connect. There's one world, there's one reality everything that we understand about that reality sheds different light. And if, if you know what other people are working on and why they're passionate about it and why they're excited about it, that ultimately is going to give richer context to what you're doing. And it may well inspire you to go um, next, next level in, in some way. So, so that, was, that was what was special about TED was that because it was people, originally TED 
it was technology, entertainment, design. People from those three industries were being brought together. Um, and it turned out they could learn a lot from each other. But the way in which you would speak at a conference like that wasn't how you would speak at a general conference full of jargon and so forth. You would deliberately try to make your content accessible to a, to a broader group. And so, you know, you were giving people tools to understand things outside their own trench. Now, that's really interesting. I mean, I see the thread more clearly now being interested, you know, in your whole magazine publishing and things that other people were interested in. And then I imagine you saw a similar thing at TED. It was at first the three disciplines. I uh, And I'm not usually grateful for the algorithm, but the uh, YouTube algorithm spit up your vision talk when you acquired TED, when your foundation yeah. acquired TED. Yes, it did. And so I thought, oh, I got to watch this. And it was, twelve. I, I just literally finished a course on leading change and I've led change for 25 years. And I watched what you did. Do you remember? I'm sure you remember the talk well. You were seated, seated in a chair and... Um, you explained to these owners, so to speak, these delegates, that you were the new boss. You had just acquired Ted. And you just spoke from the heart because you talked about your business career. And you said, you know, I thought it was a bit of a business hero, but it really didn't go the way I thought. And then you talked about the dot-com crash and everything. I don't know. Do you, do you remember that talk well? Oh, I, I, I really do. Um yeah. Now that was that was at a moment when it wasn't clear whether the TED transition would work, you know, because I'd, I'd bought it, but I'd wow. bought it from uh, a charismatic owner. And the general opinion among the crowd was that post Richard Werman, um, the, the, the TED couldn't work, you know, that he was, he was, he held it, to, you know, together. And so wow. I'd, I'd gambled on it being. Uh, you know that there was there was um, there was a community there and a desire to keep it going, but th- this was my chance to persuade people. And up to the moment of that talk, almost no one had signed up for the next year's conference. Um, it was so it was it was it was stressful. So this was a talk at the end at the end of the final conference done by the 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 the, the predecessor, the founder of TED. Um, and I'm not a good public. Speaker. I mean, I was nervous. I, I often come over as awkward. And um, uh, so, you know, I wasn't standing up. I, like I sat down on a chair and just, I just thought that the best shot at doing this was to be vulnerable um, and honest and tell people what I really thought. And what I really thought was that the world needed this conference, that the, that there was, so many ideas only work when they come together. You know, you just, you need to learn about things from multiple sources. I think the example I gave there was happiness, was that to understand happiness, it's not just some folk story that you learned on your mother's knee or, you know, there's neuroscience has a part to play. Uh, Religion may well have a part to play. Evolutionary biology may well have a part to play. Neuroscience, you know, the, the way in which societies, there's just lots of different pieces. And if if you care about your long-term happiness, which everyone does, then having a place where you can hear about these things from many ways, that really matters. And so I just, I think what I told people was that, look, 
I've, uh, I'm a, I've, I, I thought I was great at business. Turned out I've, I'm kind of a loser. You know, my company blew up in the dot-com crash. Horrible. I, I survived by turning to reading and turning to the world of ideas and discovering to my amazement how, how much had happened since I'd been at university um, and how, just how rich that world was and how much potential there. And, the, and so the thought of immersing myself in a community that was interested in ideas, that was very exciting to me. And anyway, somehow, somehow um, um, people, I, I think people were secretly dying for TED to continue because it was a big deal for them. And so I, I promised them that it, this wasn't going to be like a commercial takeover. It wasn't, I wasn't trying to make money from it. I, it was, it was a foundation that was taking over. We were just doing it for the ideas and, and please come on this journey with me. So there's so much we can learn together. And, um, and yeah, somehow that, 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 that played well. And in the, and in the, in the break after that, like 200 people signed up for the next year's event. And, and, and that was the moment where I knew Ted was actually going to work. So yeah, I would say that 15 minutes was probably the most stressful and, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, consequential um, of my recent life, for sure. I think what got me was it was so vulnerable and so open. You were seated. It looked like it was unscripted. It certainly felt like it was coming straight from your heart. And, you know, you did the classic British uh, self-deprecating move, which obviously <laughs> wins people over. And, uh, but then... Listen, true, Carrie. When we say it, <laughs> it's kind of basically true, true at all. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was so endearing. And we'll link to it in the show notes. But I think if anybody particularly, and I did not realize how successful the conference was and how revered the founder was, but I can think of all the people listening to this who are in that situation going, oh gosh, they all want the old guy, you know, the guy who used to lead it, the woman who used to lead it. And for you to come in with that kind of vulnerability, and then I think you had three things you were going to do. And number one was, I'm going to change nothing, which I'm sure held for six months or a year. And then a lot changed. Um, but uh, that it was amazing. To me, it was like an example that I'm going to point to again and again of a brilliant vision talk because it was so disarming and so vulnerable. So thanks for giving well, us the nice I'm not sure that a lot of people have said that, by the way, but... <laughs> did you get reaction to that? Like, what did people I mean, say? There, there, there was reaction, but it was, it was, I think it was more the community. Like, so um, Jeff, Jeff Bezos was sitting in there, there in the front, third row or second row or something like that. And uh, he... Um, he stood up like I'd, I'd, I'd built a friendship with him, and and um, um, and so he he stood up right of, right after I finished speaking, and so you know you know how that that works like so so everyone stood up, but I think it was for Jeff, not for the talk, and uh, and and it was almost like like the community was saying, okay, we'll give this a shot, you know, but it's like crowds, audiences talk to each other in all kinds of subtle ways during any talk. Um, it's really any talk is a, is kind of like a co-creation between speaker and an and audience, and uh, so yeah, so there was there was there was great uh, reaction to it, but I think it was more relief that that um, you know that, that 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 Ted could could continue. Well, um, let's talk about that progress because you made a couple of other decisions. I'm sure there was the first three years you, you opened the speaker to a wider variety than just technology education or design. Um, 
But then in 2006, you made a real... Technology entertainment design. design. I kind of wish the E was education sometimes, but it was actually entertainment. I probably Um, had that wrong my whole life. Thank you. The original three. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Entertainment and design. I did not know that. Yeah, so it was like, it was starting in 84 where you had like, here's the Apple Mac for the first time, you know, technology, you know, entertainment, look at all the stuff you can do it, elegant design. those, Those were the sort of the three intersecting pieces. Um, but education is is what TED in many ways has become. And it's what I, what I, what I, mean, I that's become. how I think about it. I think yeah. about it as education and I just should read the fine print at some point or the, the, the bigger font. Um, so what were some of the first changes you made? 2006 was a pivotal year. You decided to post talks online. Yeah. So, so I, I bought TED through using a nonprofit, you know, I made a, despite the crash or whatever, I'd, I'd put, managed to put some money aside into a foundation and that was what I used to buy, buy TED. Um, and so as a foundation, you can't really just have an elite conference once a year. You have to kind of try and do something for the public good. And initially, our thoughts were, well, people are inspired there. Maybe we can encourage, we can use some of the money we make for the conference to back one of the speakers or something like that. Um, we tried a fellows program, which which has continued to this day. We've... Um, um, and we 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 had a, a prize, you know, to try and uh, get behind. You know, to, we we would give the people who won the prize a wish, any wish, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll try and make your wish come true. Um, so we were trying to do things like that. But the real the real opportunity for TED was to try to get the talks more seen. And so yeah, by uh, we started talking, trying to persuade television companies to put them on air and do some kind of TED program and we met with universal shaking of heads. And it's like, really? You so you went to the that? networks? Yeah. Like yeah. To, like, yeah. Um, I don't know how to put this to you, but talking heads are really boring. I mean, lectures, you think you could have a successful television program based on lectures? Ha 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 ha. <laughs> we got nowhere. We got nowhere. We got nowhere. <laughs> That's awesome. But so, so yeah. that didn't work. Yeah. And then this little miracle called online video started to happen. And I, I don't know if you remember back in 2006, it was pretty, first of all, it didn't work very well in most circumstances. You'd often, you'd have a, your laptop open and there in the corner, you'd have a little screen and, you know, it'd be sort of pixelated and you'd see little kittens doing silly tricks or whatever. And, you know, like people, early, early YouTube stuff. Um, yeah. But, um, but still... A lot of buffering. <laughs> we thought we should try as an experiment. We, we decided to put six talks out as a, as a sort of video podcast thing. Um, and not, not really knowing whether, you know, how, how well the inspiration and the impact of them would actually translate onto a computer screen versus being in the room. Didn't, there was, wasn't clear it would work. And so the, the amazing thing that happened was um, people responded to them. They went viral we got, we started to receive emails from people that showed me that there was passion being unlocked. People were being touched at a deep level. You know, people would say, I am sitting at my, looking at my computer screen and tears are rolling down my face. Wow. And I was like, whoa. Or people would say, I, like, I have just had the most meaningful conversation with my daughter uh, that I've had in 10 years. Thank you for that talk. And I, I, I was looking at these jaw agape. 
um, saying, okay, well, that's it. We have no choice. We have to put our content out. And so, you know, we, so, so we kind of, there was a conscious decision then to flip to being not mainly a conference, but mainly a distribution of, of these ideas in talk form. Was it still one annual event in Monterey at that time, or had you expanded a little bit beyond that? Still, so the single one-year multi-day event. Yeah, I think we'd had, I think we might have by then had one TED in Oxford, England, like a sort of um, a TED TED Global. Um, We we were just starting doing, doing that as well. But uh, it was basically, yeah, it was, it was, it was basically the single conference was what drove almost everything. And the risk was that if you gave away the content, would anyone still come to the conference? Um, and so we definitely got pushback from people on it. And, um, you know, it felt, it was, it was probably a risk, but we, (laughs) we listened to some of the Ted talks that were doing the rounds back then that were talking about how on the internet, you know, information wanted to be free, how there were all these examples of the amazingness that could happen when you gave people a chance to cooperate together and so forth. Um, and um, decided it was worth, worth the risk. And, um, and of course, the, the amazing thing that happened is that far from you know, reducing demand for the conference, it actually massively increased it because these talks spread around the world and, and uh, we suddenly got deluged with people wanting to help. Um, I mean, the, the um, you know, the religious person in me, if you like, was almost, um, um, you know, give, give, give something away and be amazed at what comes back. Um, it's an idea that's actually in every religion. And it's, I th- actually think it's wired into humans generally, that people reciprocate generosity. Giving away these talks was perceived by people as generous. Um, and they wanted to do stuff with them. They wanted to share them. They wanted to translate them. And, um, uh, and so we, we were just, we were, we were stunned by the response. And yes, it changed, it changed what TED is. Yeah, you've written a number of books, one of which, you know, obviously TED Talks, probably the one you're, you're best known for, and we'll get there. But did you write a book? It was really hard to verify because there's a French version on Amazon.com. There's a Blinkist, which attributes it to you. Uh, did you write a book called Free? Maybe in two thousand nine. Was, was that actually you? Okay, so so I'm very happy to clear up this confusion. So there there are two Chris Andersons, um, oh. and I'm not that one. There is a, there is a brilliant Chris Anderson. He's a friend actually, and he's he's spoken at TED. But he is he is the ex editor of Wired magazine. And oh, so okay, he, gotcha. He, he he wrote Free, um, and um, um, and a, cu- a couple of other brilliant books on on the internet. So he is, he is, you know, if you want to terminate this podcast right now, Kerry, and, and go and get the real Chris Anderson, I, I welcome you to do it. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. Very, very, very interesting. <laughs> no, he made the same point in that book because the, the actual book left in publication is in French and I studied it in elementary school, but cannot read a book in it. So I found a Blinkist on it. I subscribed to that. And I'm like, that's exactly, he wrote about what you were just talking about. What is... is- Exactly. Mm. This is this is this is the whole. There, there was so much excitement about the internet in those yeah. in, in the aughts. You know, there was a real belief that um, it was bringing the world together. 
um, and that it changed everything. It made so many things possible. And one of the things that was clear was that all the rules around what you give away and what you keep um, were changing, and that and that there was actually huge power to giving giving things away. And um, I've become I've certainly I, I think that still applies to the internet today. And um, you know I've been thinking about that aspect a lot. In many ways, it drove everything that we did at TED um, was to try to. Honestly, and I, I think this is actually the best single strategic question that anyone who has any kind of online presence should and could ask. What is the most radical thing I can give away? What could I give away that would stun people that they could really value um, and and use? Because if you can if you can get a good answer to that question, um, you may be a- amazed at what comes back. I mean, in a way, Kerry, your whole work, you know, it's all based on giving away amazing content and people, you know, that grows you an audience, a growing audience and people talk about you and want, want to do more. And it's like, like, yes, you, you, you know, you can get, there are ways of getting podcasts funded and making them profitable and so forth. But even just as a generosity model, there's a lot of power there. Um, I think there is. I mean, these are, these are, this is the kind of conversation I'm taking notes while we're talking that I always had always hoped to have with you. And the fact that it isn't in a green room somewhere at an event or over a coffee shop and there are microphones and tens of thousands of leaders will be able to listen to it. That actually makes me really happy, you know, which is, which is um, a cool thing. And yet uh, I'm, I'm going to go here and feel free to divert if you want to divert, but I think you got enough church in you to answer this question growing <laughs> up with missionary parents. Chris, believe it or not, there's an active debate happening right now at the end of 2022 about church leaders who are still debating whether they should put their services online, whether they should offer their content for free. And it's a competitive mindset about, well, if I put it out there on the internet, people aren't going to show up in person. What are your thoughts on that? Do you have any advice for leaders who are in that? Because the whole business model thing we've been able to figure out, but it is paradoxical and totally different from the way, quote, business has been done for years. The first thing I'll say is, is that none of this is kind of intuitive, that often it's the counterintuitive thing is the right, is the right answer. Um, I think if you, I think if it, it, and every situation is different. I, I'm definitely not recommending that people give away everything that they've got without thought to it. And, you know, how you do it matters. Um, for example, if, if, I mean, why are people coming to church? Are they really coming to listen to the sermon live? Um, my guess is that the main reason people are coming to church is the same reason why they come to TED. They're really coming there for a sense of community for each, for each other. And they, they probably put up with the sermon as much as uh, in many cases. <laughs> um, and, um, True um, there. Well, they come because it's, 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 it's what they do. They're, they're churchgoers and, and this is their community. Um, but, Beyond that, I would say, if you, how confident are you in what you are saying? Like, do you think that the words you have can change someone, can move them, can inspire them, can nudge them to be a better human, can help them understand the world um, uh, better in some way? If so, why on earth wouldn't you want that to be out there to a wider audience? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's like if you do it the right way, 
it's likely to be absolutely the best way of, of recruiting people, not, not, not uh, losing them. So, I mean, that was definitely our, our experience. Um, but um, so it feels to me like that's, that's a, that's a d- defensive mindset that is, is, is prob- probably off. Yeah, I, I would definitely be with you in that answer. I think an abundance mindset always gets you a lot further than a scarcity mindset. I am curious, though, what is, and I know it's a, fa- a non-for-profit, non-profit uh, foundation that, that runs TED, the Sapling Foundation. Um, what is the revenue model for TED? How is it funded? So um, the main uh, revenue source for a long time was conference fees. You know, the conferences. Um, expensive and um, you know the people people who come up really end up funding a lot of else of what Ted has has done as as more people have come um, you know we've been able to dream of other programs like building a website where you can give away all these talks for for free um, but we have had a, there's other revenue from um, online sponsors of the talks um, we do we have other services that we offer, um, like we offer training for companies that we get some revenue from and we get some philanthropy as well. I think that's probably going to be a, a, a growing part of TED. Obviously during the pandemic, um, our finances were hit quite badly and, um, we've, we've bled quite a bit the last few years and we're in the process of, you know, sort of, um, fighting our way back. And, uh, we had, a, had an amazing conference again in Vancouver in April. So, you know, but that, that's, that's at the heart of it is, those those main events that by themselves are I mean you could critique them as elitist if you wanted to, except that we we bring in a bunch of people on scholarships and make all the content free to the world. And literally anybody with internet connection can yeah. see what happened in Vancouver. Yeah. And we've also given given away our brand, Kerry, which turned, was another thing that turned out to be amazingly and surprisingly effective. By two thousand nine, TEDx. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, People wanted us to come and do TED in different parts of the world and we didn't have the resources to do it. So we said, well, radical generosity, what does that look like? That looks like giving away our brand. You can do it. You have a TED event. You can put an asterisk on it called an X, TEDx. Um, it turns out that that asterisk came to mean TED multiplied because what people did with it locally was astonishing. And we've ended up, you know, we've ended up with three, there are 3,000 curatorial teams around the world now who put on an event I mean, the pandemic hit it, but but pretty much, you know, annually, they create twenty five thousand videos that are posted on YouTube annually, um, and uh, they account for about a billion views annually. So, you, you know, those that whole enterprise is overseen by about twenty people in New York. Like that, there's no way that there's no other way that you could build a media operation of that of that sort of scale of billion views. 25,000 videos, whatever, with 20 people. Um, but you can, if you give things away and let other people own it, they do the work, they take the risk. You know, there's literally, in addition to these 20 people, there are probably 60,000 volunteers around the world spending significant amounts of their time undergoing some financial stress to get their events sponsored. You know, they're doing all of the actual work, unpaid. We don't charge them. It's a sort of, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful gift economy thing that's going on there where ev- everyone is giving something and helping out our brand helps them get the audiences that they need and 
the speakers they want. Um, but what we get back is breathtaking. And uh, so I just, again, I just, I, I just think that it's another example of how if, if you're bolder in, your, in what you give away, you can be absolutely amazed at what, what happens. Yeah, so there's there's no revenue model associated with TEDx. It's just like here's the formula. Do it. The the licenses are free. Um they the videos that come back that are posted on our channel, the the, the advertising that uh YouTube sells on that, we do get a share of that. So so we do we do we do actually get some revenue. It doesn't that in itself doesn't cover the full cost of the licensing operation that we have, but it, it goes some way towards it. And, um, uh, but no, mainly it's, it's the, the events themselves are all, uh, locally sponsored. They, they have, they all have their own local business model. Um, I think anyone who's thinking about doing this, think about rules and tools. They both really matter. You have to have rules if you're going to give away something like your brand and like, how can it be used? What are our values? What doesn't count? What must you do? What must you not do? Um, we don't like people to have talks, for example, on politics, religion, or pseudoscience, because those are recipes for, you know, um, people getting angry with each other at some point. They can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but, uh, but we have what's much more important is the tools that we have, which are here is how to put on a good event, you know, here's how to recruit and train speakers. Here's how to record them well, etc. And what happens when you've got 3000 people doing that is that they start um, teaching each other, they learn from each other. So you have this, this sort of self improving system. That's that's a wonder to behold. I have a friend who spoke at TEDx in Toronto earlier this year. And she said the process was so rigorous, even at a TEDx event. And her talk went on to have over a million views four months in or whatever, which is incredible. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah, Dr. Say, Karen Gordon, she did a great job. Yeah, some of the best so, talks, some of the very best talks we've got on the platform are from TEDx events. You know, so, you know, Brene Brown. When you choose, you select what you feature on the TED platform from TEDx? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's a decision. Now that makes sense because you protect the brand. You wouldn't want a TEDx event to be cultish or bizarre or, uh, you know, some kind of radical fringe movement thing. On the other hand, you also have enough freedom to say and go ahead and do it. Boy, this is, this is, you know, this, this passion and seeing the passion in others and releasing the passion in others. That's a theme I didn't expect preparing for this, but it's, it's really, really compelling. Okay. So we have to talk about Ted talks. Um, and let me ask you this very basic question. I'm sure you've been asked a thousand times, but what makes an idea worth spreading in Mm -hmm. your view? Um, there are so many things that can make an idea worth spreading. Um, I, I, I guess I divide them into two categories. I mean, first of all, I'd say that ideas in general are what have built civilization. Like we, we would be another species of ape were it not for the fact that we can um, share ideas. And, and, and you know, it's, it's those that build culture. Ideas outlive their originators and, um, and they build on each other. And so all of, all of human culture really is, a, is an edifice of ideas that, that just, you know, it, 
get 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 more and more powerful. Um, the two the two main categories of of idea I think that is probably worth pointing to is you know ideas can help you understand the world in a new way. So it's just it's just a, a reshuffling, if you like, of how you are putting the pieces together. Um, and, um, you know, I hadn't understood that you could think of creativity in this way before and that it plays that role. So there's sort of, there's sort of um, insights that you can get just from a better understanding of the world. But I think the bigger piece is, that, and, and the miracle of ideas really, is that, is that ideas allow us to reshuffle the future. You know, we can, we can try out lots of different futures in our minds and pick the one we like. You know, it's um, Dan Gilbert, the TED speaker, said, you know, our, our brains are these um, simulators. You know, they, they can, they can they somehow in this gooey three-pound mass of gray goo that, you know, that, that you, you couldn't, they can paint a picture of what could be. And so the, the, I, the, I think the most powerful ideas are people who say, this is what could be. You know, we've got a problem here. We know about this, 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 and this. But what if, what if, let me tell you, let me show you what that thing could look like. And, and that vision may well draw, if it's painted the right way, may well draw other people to it. And when enough people are drawn to it, you can go, you know? And it, this is, of course, this is, goes back, this is part of all human history, you know? Here is the promised land. You know, it's flowing with milk and honey. Doesn't that sound good? I know, let's go there. It may take us 40 years, you know, but uh, it's worth it. So it's, it's like, it's, it's incredible that humans can do this and that we can present an idea that will pull people along. But uh, so I'd say that's, that's, that's the biggest thing is, is um, that picture of the, of, of the future. And, and there's, there's one other key thing I'll say is that every idea that is a powerful idea reshapes what, what, uh, what's been termed the adjacent possible. So, you know, at any one moment, it's possible to dream of certain things. Um, but um, if, you know, if you're in the year 1700, you can't dream of, oh, I could create a streaming video show, you know, like that, that's not a thing that could be imagined then. Um, it takes all these building blocks to be in place before you can imagine that. Some of the big things like, like the Gutenberg printing press created this vast set of new adjacent possibilities. Suddenly anyone with something big to say could say it and reach thousands or millions of people with it in writing. Now we have the internet. That is just the most incredible expansion of the adjacent possible because it allows you and me to sit down where we're, we're nowhere near each other, uh, but we can talk and have a conversation that many other people can hear. And, and as a result of this conversation, who knows, maybe there's some little spark goes off in someone's mind that creates something, you know, so, so, so ideas are constantly, every, certainly every technology, but ideas in general, are constantly shape-shifting what the adjacent possible looks like. And that, that's what makes them so exciting because it, it literally allows you to, the more ideas you're exposed to, um, the more you can dream about your own future or the role that you could play. And, uh, and, and that, in fact, is the most single most 
I would say satisfying aspect to me of what TED Talks do is that they shift people sometimes from being spectators to being agents. You know, um, the future is not just this thing that is going to hit me like a train or not and that I can be frightened of or moan about or whatever. The future isn't written yet and I'm going to be one of the people writing it, so I better get started. I'm going to be an agent. And uh, and that that I think is a very healthy and beautiful attitude. And that's that's how that's how better futures get made. In your book called TED Talks, you've got a section on mistakes that uh, communicators make, and it was amusing. Uh, I could empathize with the fact that you're sitting in the front row at some TED events, going, "Oh my gosh, how is this happening on our stage? We prepped this person." Uh, you had that more than once, Chris. Yes. What, what are some, because we got lots of communicators listening to this right now, and some of them I'm sure want to give a TED Talk one day. So what are, what are some like, oh, please don't do that things in a talk that you think are deal breakers? I think the single, single worst thing is, that, is people coming in, viewing this. This is an opportunity for me to promote myself, my cause, my company, my organization. Um, uh, wrong start point. Um, people see through that and it often is, is a, is a turnoff. I think come planning to be generous, come planning to give to a group of people the single most beautiful gift you could give them, which is an idea. You can, you can literally, you've got something in your head that could literally rewire their brains and they could be benefiting from days, months, or years from now. You know, that, that is, that is an incredible thing. And so I, so I think it's it's start with um, what what does this what do I have that this audience could could really be excited by and could make a difference to them? Um, so that's the healthy start point. And so that means, for example, that I think the thing that the worst thing that often happens at TED is that people know they think of TED as oh it's this place where they give these inspiring talks. I'm going to come on and be the inspirer, and um, and they miss they they use the surface tools of it, of inspiration, standing on stage, arms aloft, eyes aglow, looking out at people, speaking expansively, and telling some grandiose story about themselves, or whatever. It's 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 that's not really what inspires. Inspiration mm. comes from usually from humility, from courage, from authenticity, from from sharing something that is real and that, and that is actually valuable to the audience. So, so I just say, start, start by planning to bring a gift. The gift is the idea. What is that idea? And, and give the talk in service of that idea. What, where a lot of talks go wrong is that they kind of ramble in some way. They, they have a lot of interesting little sub elements or whatever, but there's no clear through line. And so, you know, I think, I think having, um, if, if there's if there's one key thing that you want to communicate, figuring out how you make that through line of the talk. And then the rest of the pieces slot in fairly quickly. Like you might want to start out by making people curious about that that through line, that question. You know, is it's a question or it's maybe it's an endearing initial story or whatever. You you need to open people up initially and build some kind of connection and give them a reason to care about the next 15 minutes. Um and um but you know, let everything 
illuminate some aspect of that. So say it's say the through line is, you know, you're trying to solve a particular problem. You start by showing people what the problem is and why, why it's an issue and how you came across it and how it moved you and why it's a difficult problem to solve. And you maybe take people down a couple of dead ends and saying, you might think this would, this would be a way you could do this. We tried this, it was disastrous. It really didn't work, you know. Um, and um, and so, so, so I think, I think the single biggest mistake that a lot of people make, certainly when they come to TED first time, is they say, I've got this body of work. Um, it, I cover so many things. I've got to share people something of all of that whole body of work. And so what they then do is go into summary mode and they say, so, you know, I, I believe in, you know, podcasting and I think it's really important to get good information for people, but I also believe in preaching. And, and so I do that. And then I do, you know, that sort of giving someone a resume is really boring. It's <laughs> <is> really boring. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What, so, so usually the advice is say, say less, go pick one thing but go deeper into that one thing, develop it, show, show it in a way that makes people curious and makes them laugh and makes it like, like take people on a curiosity journey that has a sort of a satisfying outcome. Uh, and having said that, Kerry, every, every talk is different. Like there, there, there really, there can't be a formula. If there's a few, sometimes people come thinking they know what a formula is and it comes over just as cliched, and you, you don't. Well, want there that. are books that claim that they have the TED Talk formula, but I read yours instead. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, something can be a formula for about a month, but then people then it becomes cliched and boring. So you know what? What 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 matters is to find the the way in which you uniquely can connect with this audience uniquely, and that's it's, true. It's different in every case, honestly. Even if you sample the top 10 talks, you know, the most watched TED Talks, they're all different. And some of them are quirky and some of them are, well, they're all brilliant in one way or the other, but you're like, oh, that's interesting. Different things resonate. Right. Um, one of the things you revolutionized was the time of a talk. 18 minutes, tops, you know, it, you, you, you can have Elon Musk. He doesn't get uh, extra time or he, whoever. He actually does. Or did. Oh, he does. Elon does. <laughs> Pick the wrong example. Well, you did. You did a brilliant interview. Couple of them, with them, one on film and one live. And you've you've done a bunch over the years. Yeah, and I'm afraid they were longer than than eighteen. I mean, look, the the eighteen minute thing, it, it, where that came from. First of all, when I took over TED, it was officially fifteen minutes, but speakers interpreted that as twenty or twenty five. So I said eighteen, and uh, just to be anchor it precisely and speakers interpret that as 18, 19 or 20. Um, and, um, um, but the truth is you, for, for, because you're trying to communicate to people outside your own area of knowledge, it behooves, usually it behooves you to be short and to express things in a way that is accessible because people want to know outside. They, they want these messages from outsiders, but they, they, I don't know. It's, it's, it is hard to listen for longer than about 18 or 20 minutes, unless you're really into it. There is absolutely a place for 45 minute, one hour long, two hour long talks, I dare say. Um, and so, you know, in the right circumstances, um, those are great. And I think, you know, we, we're open to actually having longer talks um, on our platform from time to time. But by and large, the discipline to give people is 
go shorter and think about every word and really, you know, we're, we're in an attention war. People don't have a lot of time. And um, um, so your best shot is to go pretty short and use that time really well. Well, and, and you know, I got to ask this question because I wouldn't be fair to my audience if I didn't, but there is a long debate in the church about length of sermons and the preacher always wants more time and other people say less time. How would you weigh in on that? Because I've heard, heard the argument made, oh, you should do 18-minute sermons just like TED Talks. I think there are some, I agree with you, I think there are some communicators who can hold court for an hour, but unfortunately I know a lot of people who think they can hold court for a lot longer than they can. Yeah, I think it'd be a good it'd be a good exercise to have a, have someone ask people in the congregation anonymously uh, whether they think the current sermons could be a bit shorter. Uh, I would I would definitely bet money that if like if they're currently running at forty minutes, I would bet that most people actually would prefer shorter. I mean, look, there there, there are moments when when you can, but I mean, uh, th- there's also a trap that every speaker falls into, which is that you know they 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 love the sound of their own voice and. Um, um, I, you know, so I, I, I would definitely lean towards if an hour or so, if say a service is an hour, right. That people, which might be the, again, the limits of most people, what they can comfortably commit to every single Sunday or what, you know, depending on your, your religion, um, what is the best time in that hour? And how do you, it's a community, you know, how do you bring in other people in the, in the community? Could you not have a format where you invite people in the community? What, like, what is, what is your piece of knowledge, your insight that you've learned? Is there something you could share? You know, obviously music plays such a crucial role, but um, storytelling from the community, I think can be, could be very, very binding and, um, uh, and so forth. Having said that, I, I, like I'm, I'm no longer, I don't go to church now and I'm, I'm not, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a religious person, but I, I think r- religions have figured out a lot of things that show real insight into how human psychology works and what we need. Like the fact that people come together once a week to be reminded that there is something bigger than them to be reminded of awe and wonder and love and to be nudged to be their better selves. That, that is an extraordinary public service, I would say. And, um, and I wish, I, I really worry that the secular world hasn't found um, an alternative to that. And I, I fear that, you know, there are probably consequences to that because people people are a mix, right? Whether there's goodness in, I, I personally think there's goodness in everyone. I think there are circumstances when all of us can be a little bit evil. Um, um, and whether that's because, you know, angels and devils are, are, are battling out within your mind or whether it's because of just different elements of human psychology, it, it is real. That, 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 that is real. And we, and we need, we don't pen, spend nearly enough time figuring out how to empower um, the better parts of ourselves. Um, Religious practice has, by default, done that, um, I think quite powerfully in in many many circumstances. And uh, I really think it's a challenge to the secular world to get us act together and figure out how to to do some of that. Because, um, 
you know, I mean, well, you're looking at a world right now where oftentimes people are not very nice to each other and um, it's dangerous. It's scary. Well, it's interesting. And thank you for raising that, Chris, because, you know, I think about this quite a bit. And if you look what's happening in the secular world, it's like a lot of the religious categories haven't disappeared. Cancel culture is all about shame and honor and sin and justice and all of those things. I'm not sure meted out in the best possible way that we can as human beings, but it's almost like the the theological categories that you were raised in, that, that Christians are raised in, you know, they, they don't disappear from the culture, but they almost become, you know, misused blunt instruments. Now, that said, they've also been used as blunt instruments in the church too. Just read a little bit of church history or talk to enough people and it's not like Christians use them perfectly, but I think you raise a really good point. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what does the secular culture do without the church's good influence? I think it's an un- unsolved problem. You know, there's a TED talk that um, Alain de Botton, the philosopher, gave at TED. It's called Atheism 2.0. Um, and he was basically saying, look, I'm an atheist, and, and many, many of you in the audience are, you know, whatever. But the... Um, um, we should not ignore what centuries of religious practice have brought to the world. It, we should be incredibly careful before discarding that. And he, one of the points he made was that this, this sort of pattern of weekly pulling people together and, and nudging. He also said, you know, things like um, art, the art that, uh, re, you know, religions have inspired um, the community that that they they have inspired these things these things matter a lot and um, and so he he was there was an atheist there warning that that the, the secular world is uh, is 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 not doing what it sh- what it should or could be doing um, um, so I, I I don't know I personally think that um, there's a lot that could and should be done in that space I mean there's plenty of you know you have you have secular organizations that understand the power of regular meeting, for example. Um, there's a wonderful organization, there's Creative Mornings, where creative people get come together every Tuesday. Um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous brings together people regularly. Like There's, there's, there's lots. We, 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 we may need this kind of nourishing. And, and a world in which we are, uh, apart from each other, tapping rude text messages to each other on social media... It's not, it's not, it's not healthy, honestly. Mm. Um, Is there anything in your Christian upbringing that you miss? Um, yeah. Um, you know, certainty. <laughs> you know, the belief of, the belief that, you know, here is a worldview, we live on this earth, uh, you know, we then go to another place. Like there, there's a sort of, there's a comfort um, to that. Um, my own, the, the expression of it that, that meant most to me when I was, when I was um, growing up was through C.S. Lewis. I thought his, his, um, his big picture painting that, um, that you could view Christianity um, in the context of this sort of um, inspiring mythology um, um, was, uh, was powerful. Um, and, and I think, yeah, d- definitely the sense of having a community of people committed to wanting to behave ethically. Now, 
what I was puzzled about or surprised by as I, as I gradually got exposed to more people outside the church was how many people outside the church actually are also committed to that. Um, people, and it was, it was a puzzle to me. It's like, why on earth would someone want to behave ethically if they didn't have to? It takes effort. <laughs> why not just be selfish, for goodness sake? Um, um, but it but, but turns out that um, generosity and a desire to do good and so forth, like it's actually a part of, um, it's an important part of human nature, I think. And whether it was put there by God or by evolution, um, it's, it, it, is, it is a part of human nature and, and lots, of, lots of people feel it and express it. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and that, that, is, that was thrilling to discover. And it was actually one of the reasons why I gave myself permission to, you know, s- sort of to, you know, to let, to let go. But I haven't, I haven't, um, how can I say, I'm not, I'm not a sort of a confident, certain atheist in the scope of someone like a Richard Dawkins or whatever. I think, I think there's so much mystery um, to the world. Um, I think um, there's lots of clues and evidence of indeed, like it's, 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 you know, an intentional creator of the universe. There are lots of possibilities there, but beyond the, the God I was brought up to believe in, um, um, that intrigue, me and I'm not necessarily I'm not really talking about other religions, but just that um you know, I mean everything going as far as um you know, a bunch of people want to make the philosophical argument that we're living in a simulation. Well that sounds silly. Mm-hmm. But but if you believe that, you believe in a creator. Um it's just that they they are they, they they you know, it was a he, she, they, you know, who who was it? Who knows? Uh, and what was their intention? But I mean you you couldn't if you go there, you can imagine a lot of possibilities. And I, I like to, you know, think of if there were, to me, if there was a creator, the, the most, the most likely thing is not that they had a detailed plan for every single thing that happened because the way things have worked out, that is a pretty sick plan in many ways. Um, I like to think of a creator as almost like a, a courageous, edgy artist who wanted to build something that would itself create and and create things that would amaze it or them or he or she, um, and and that um, and that they were willing to take an incredible risk that you know you could have horrifying things like suffering at an extraordinary scale and so forth, but you might be able to create a world that would blow you away and that would, would have things happen that you never planned. And I, it's, it's intriguing to me that that's, that's, that idea is never really talked about or thought about, but it, to me it's, it's quite an exciting idea that, the, that, that um, um, God itself would be stunned at the amazingness of the Amazon forest and the intricate web of life that is in there and the incredible richness of, of what is there, that, that that wasn't a novel that was written where, okay, we're going to have this spotted frog and this thing. What we're going to do is we're going to make a system that can evolve and create variety and wonder and, and, be, and, and everyone will be blown away by it. I, hmm. I'm excited by, by that idea more than the idea that the world with all its evils and horrors was, was written 
verse by verse, word by word. Um, to me, that's that that that's like I, I I can't get past that. And that was the single biggest reason why I think I, I left was the notion that really? it's all a plan. Our our only job is to understand our part in the plan. You know, to me, that's lessening what 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 humans are, are, are capable of. But I don't want to upset any of your listeners, Carrie. So I'm. Oh, I, you're not I'm upsetting listeners. It's, no. it's, it's, See, it's, that's that's really intriguing because it strikes me, Chris. And again, I'm not a theologian, but there are theologians within what I would loosely call Orthodox Christianity, who who I think posit that view. I mean, it was Irenaeus who said, "The glory of God is man fully alive, humankind fully alive," which is which is interesting. Like. How do you glorify God, right? It's a really good question. I, I saw a concert from a favorite artist a few years ago. And this is a guy who doesn't do it for the money. Uh, it was John Mayer, actually. There are John Mayer fans, people who don't like him, people who like him. When you see that guy perform live, he leaves nothing behind. He's just all in there. And I don't think he's a person of faith. I don't know. But I'm like, there's the glory of God in that performance artists being artists and musicians being musicians and speakers being speakers and thinkers thinking. I don't know. Well, certainly anyone, you know, who, who is excited by a world of wonder and just like the, the, the mystery of the universe, that, that is something which I, I am in awe of. And, um, you know, I think to my dying day will be something that I'm just, I'm just dying to understand more about like, how, who are we? How did this happen? What is this for? Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, those things to me are so much richer and deeper and more inspiring than the typical way that the human journey is described. And, and it's, you know, most people don't have, maybe don't even have time to think about those things that, that you know, it's about survival. It's about trying to scratch out a living and look after your family. And if you do that, that's enough. And probably that, you know, that, that traditionally, you know, I mean, for a lot of human history and for a lot of lives, that has been all there's been time or energy for. But we are in a world of, compared with history, a world of astonishing abundance. We do have time to ask a lot of these other questions. And, um, it's an amazing time to be alive. It really is. It's an amazing time to be alive. And you see, you know, creativity, whether it's in nature or, or just human creativity, it's flourishing on an amazing scale. Artificial intelligence is allowing, I think, a whole new next level of creativity to flourish. And uh, when I think about the future that way, it's, I, I, I can still, I can get very excited about the future, despite all the, the troubles that we face. I love that. You know, you do have a lot of church leaders listening. So if you could give them a message, it's if you're, you know, for people like me, for people like myself, you would say, try thinking about this or doing this a little more. What what message, what advice, counsel would you give to church leaders listening? I mean, it's, at its heart, making the faith relevant to the modern world is, is crucial, I think. Like when religions were created, people didn't know that the earth was just one of literally trillions of planets, and that you've got this huge, vast universe out there. 
They didn't know about the incredible power of evolution to create wonderful, breathtaking things. Um, they, they didn't know about um, a world of rich culture where people outside the church are capable of extraordinary acts of human goodness and heroism. Um, so I think, I think finding um, the way to celebrate those things, and many, I know that many Christian leaders already do a wonderful job of that. Um, you know, the, the, the traditional story I was brought up with of, you know, all that matters is your declaration of faith that determines your, whether you're tortured for eternity or in bliss for eternity and so forth. Like that, that whole story is, is, is hard to make relevant and plausible, I think, and for someone who's immersed in the modern culture. But if you, but, but many other things are highly important still to anyone. Certainly, you know, just how wonderful the world is. That is something that, that can be celebrated. How um, important it is to live for people who aren't you, you know, and for people and ideas that are bigger than you are. You know, the whole thing of who is your neighbor and who are you willing to, what are you, what are you willing to give to that neighbor? You know, that's an important and inspiring message. And, um, and so, you know, I think there's, I, I think there's a lot. And I think, I think there's also power in saying you don't, um, that there's mystery and like, you know, like, like there's a lot, there's a lot that we don't know and we don't have to know everything to, um, so, so, so yeah, wonder, humility, um, and, um, and, and the sort of, um, the, the call to, um, to, to the bigger life, you know, the life that is way beyond just, you know, shopping and video games or whatever, but that like, like it's, um, I, I think there's a lot of power there for, for, for people to in, inspire and to build community. You know, there's the psychological research suggests that people who are part of religious communities are on balance happier than those who aren't. You know, there's, there's people want, people want meaning in their life. They want to know that they're part of a community and I think they want to care beyond themselves. So there's, there is a lot to, there's a lot to build on there. There really is, Chris. Thank you for weighing in on that. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, the wonder in the Psalms or Jesus turning to outsiders again and again, if you look at his ministry, that's basically what he did. And, those are really good correctives and reminders that we need in the church. Okay, a couple of quick questions, and then uh, we're getting very, very close to time. Your diverse interests really amaze me. I mean, at this stage in life, you could easily hang things up, but you're doing the opposite. You are uh, interested in, I think you did a, a vegan trial. Uh, you're very passionate about climate change. You've invested in electric flying boats, which as a boater, I'm very interested in. <laughs> and you do some of the best interviews. I was, I was sad when you handed over the TED interview to your successor, because I loved your conversations that you would have. He's doing a great job. But um, what fuels your curiosity at this stage of life? I mean, curiosity fuels itself. You know, it's, a, it's the amazing thing about the world. The more we know, it, like the, the way to think about the world is 
we're in this sort of bubble of tentative knowledge and we learn something and it pushes out into the unknown. But what that's doing is creating you know, the surface area of what's still unknown is bigger. So, I mean, every, every interesting question, even when it gets partially answered, leads to another, another question. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess right now I've, I've definitely got interested in, in the climate question. I think it's a, it, it is a, on the one hand, it's a terrifying problem, but I also do see, you know, I, like my, my whole stance is to take the optimistic stance, meaning not, I know it will be okay, but that when you see problems, we're human beings, so we respond to them. What there, there, there is a pathway forward if enough of us can agree on it. So I've got excited about potential solutions to climate change and have, yeah, have tried to support, uh, do a bit of investing in and support companies that I think could play a role. So decarbonizing ocean transport is one area and yeah, that, that um, electric foiling boat company that is, is one clever solution whereby by a boat popping up on an electric foil, you reduce friction by 75%. And so you can, you can actually make, it makes it possible to be powered by an electric battery instead of by fossil fuels. Um, and there's many other technologies. There's new generation sales and hull lubrication and new batteries and all sorts that, that could help take marine transport along the journey that cars are currently uh, going. Um, and in general, I, I, I think that there probably is, that there's a sea change in business right now. And I think there probably is a pathway to r- r- really uh, eliminating most of our emissions just about in time to avoid the absolute worst things. It's going to be, there's no question it's going to be terrible weather events like the one we're seeing right now, um, you know, in Florida as we record this. And, uh, uh, but um, humans, what's amazing about humans is that they see things, they think, they talk to each other and they figure out a pathway forward. And um, uh, I I, I believe that that can happen. And, And so, so getting involved in that can be just very, very engaging. Um, and the other thing I'm doing, I'm thinking a lot about the, this idea of infectious generosity and the role that it could play in kind of rescuing the internet. Like I hate what the internet is doing right now. It's, it's driving us apart. Generosity is in us and we reciprocate. And if, if we express generosity and, and talked about it the right way, that could go viral on online and change how we think of each other. So I've, I've been thinking about that and planning to write a book about that, be published next year. Um, I love that. And, uh, so, but you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm such a lucky person, Carrie. Like I, I ended up in this dream job of getting exposure to some amazing minds and, um, and having conversations like, like this one. So, well, it's been, I had high expectations and it has uh, greatly exceeded all of them. Um, I got to ask you this question. People ask me this about 500 episodes into the podcast. You've had thousands of TED Talks. Is there a favorite talk or two that you would point people to? I know that's like choosing. Feel free to reject the question. Choosing between your children. Who's your favorite child? <laughs> well, there, there, are, there, are, there are so so many. Like if you, if you wanted a talk that, that just is, is really fun to watch and will make you think, that's Tim Urban's talk on um, procrastination is 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 uh, a pretty beautifully crafted talk. My personal favorite, you know, I said I had this nerdy side. There's a there's a physicist slash philosopher called David Deutsch who has a mm. talk where he talks about just the, the importance of knowledge in the universe. So this is a physicist saying that knowledge 
is as important a force in the universe, maybe more important than gravity or, you know, electromagnetism and so forth. And, um, uh, and I find his, him, he, so he describes, he says that the way to think about the history of the universe is that you had the Big Bang and there was an interesting few hundred thousand years when galaxies and so forth were created. You then had several billion years of just the era of boring, where big things pushed around little things, and that was it. Um, and, um, and then something amazing happened. Little things started to push around big things. On one planet that we know very well, this little molecule called DNA started re-sculpting the entire planet's surface, a surface that was 10 to the 40 times bigger than the molecule. Um, it did so because it contained knowledge. Um, that molecule contained knowledge that could replicate and grow. And human knowledge is of a whole area more powerful again and can potentially redirect the resources, not just of an entire planet, but of a solar system or even, in theory, a galaxy. And so, so what, what's really interesting about that is that he is saying, he is arguing against what is a traditional scientific view, which is that we are as Stephen Hawking put it, chemical scum on the surface of a random planet. Um, he, not so. We actually have something that is of... It, this could be the most significant and interesting place in the entire universe. So that's, that, that's, um, that, that, that's a very compelling argument. And, I'm, and it's, it's, uh, it inspires me and um, makes me think about what we do with that knowledge. You know, it really matters. It really, really matters. Davis, I can't thank you enough for the time that you've invested in us today. Thank you. Obviously, uh, TED.com, and if people want to track with you, you're pretty active on Twitter. Where where else are you active these days? No, I mean, I, I guess if I get around to publishing this book, I'll be a bit more active um, in general. But uh, for now, yeah, just come come to TED.com and pick a, pick a TED Talk that you like. Um, yeah, I'm at Ted Chris on Twitter, but... Um, TED.com is the place to go, probably. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carrie. Great talking to you. Great questions. Take care. Man, I love that conversation. And uh, so thankful to Chris, not only for his work, for but for his transparency. And man, I love having conversations like that. If you want more, you can head on over to the show notes. It's at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 544. We've also got transcripts there for you. And we want to thank our partners before I tell you who's coming up and also something else I've got for free that I'm very excited about. Uh, let me make sure that you have headed over to successiontoolkit.com. You can get some value-packed training, which includes a super practical salary negotiation kit for free by going to successiontoolkit.com. Everybody eventually changes jobs. And if that's you this year, or you've been through that recently, or you're planning on it, check it out. And also Super Bowl is going to be a really big day. Go to hegetsuspartners.com slash fans, get your free resources and join the over 15,000 churches who are part of this movement. Well, next episode, Annie F. Towns is back and we talk all things about platform growth and building the gigantic empire she's building, the That Sounds Fun network and group of companies. Here's an excerpt. So when I even think about building companies, Carrie, what the reason we're building these is not to get rich financially, but to get rich with influence. Because mm. that's what, I mean, we need the money to move the machine. Of course, of course. And yeah, we're yeah. thankful for all the, the ways. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's exactly. And the people, right? Like, 
I want to make more money because I want more people to be sitting in here because I want to have more influence. I want us. So that is my favorite currency is influence. When I'm thinking about what we're building, when I'm thinking about what it's costing us, time is the one I worry about the most. Are our people working over hours? Am I working too many hours? Are we not using our time well? Like, so time is the currency I worry about. Influence is the currency I pursue. Money is the one we just have to need. And you guys know if you subscribe for free, you will get that automatically. And if you're a new listener, we get a lot of new listeners in January. Thank you so much for tuning in and trusting us with that. And if you'll subscribe wherever you listen to a podcast and maybe leave a rating and review, we'd be so grateful. Also coming up this month, Mark Sayers, Tim Keller, Bill McKendry about the making of the He Gets Us Super Bowl ads. Andy and Sandra Stanley. Who else have we got coming up? We've got John Mark Comer, John Lee Dumas, Gretchen Rubin, Nathan Finocchio, Mark Batterson, JP Pocluta, and a whole lot more. That's all coming up on the podcast. And one final thing before we go, and this one's free. I would love for you to check out my brand new newsletter. I started a newsletter called the On The Rise Newsletter. You can subscribe for free at ontherisenewsletter.com. And what it is, is a short email in your inbox every Friday that outlines some of the best stuff I've found on the internet, including some of the best books I'm reading, best shows I've watched, some of the most interesting ideas that are captivating my mind, best articles I've read, best videos I've seen. Think of it as a way to be introduced to new material or do some deeper research in areas, maybe for a sermon you're working on or a piece of writing you're working on or just out of general interest. It's gonna be a curious mix, kind of like this podcast. And I promise you, I'm spending a lot of time on it, as is my team, and it's free. So go to ontherisenewsletter.com. Would love to see you over there. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing. We'll catch you next time.